Hi everyone, thanks for joining today's webinar, Governments for AI. I hope it will be a fruitful conversation. We will have a speaker presentation first, and then after that, we will move on to the discussion part. So uh, without further ado, I want to give the floor to our chief editor, Shifeng Wang. Shifeng Wang is, is a published author, experienced journalist and co-founder and chief operating officer of Evomics Medical, an artificial intelligence-based healthcare startup working to provide an unprecedented holistic approach to precision medicine, as well as being the chief editor for the UN. Hi, Shifeng. Hi, so hello everyone. My name is Shifeng Wang, the chief editor of the UN. And uh, for now, welcome to the UN's Government for AI webinar. This is our first ever webinar being held in this format. And I'm thrilled to have you all join us today for what permits to be a thought-provoking and enlightening discussion on the intersection of artificial intelligence and government regulation. AI technology has rapidly become an integral part of our daily lives, reshaping industries, influencing public policy, and posing new ethical, legal, and social challenges. As we stand on the cusp of a new era marked by, by unprecedented technological uh, advancement, it is imperative that we address the role governments can and should play in guiding the development and the deployment of AI technologies. To that end, today, we have gathered a diverse group of leading minds in the field, from academic scholars to industry experts to delve into some of the most critical topics surrounding AI governance. Our estimate speakers, Jeffrey Lee Funk, uh, Patrick Glauner, Ivana Bartoletti, Gustavo Mireles, Anthony Appet, Richard Dessler, who have extensively contributed to the discourse on AI through their research and work, will share their insights and perspectives. Well, we have already published our Governments for AI series of articles. As a follow-up to this series, we also wanted to bring some of our experts together in real time. We also believe that this will make our online community more vibrant by giving readers and the contributors the opportunity to interact with one another directly. We hope that this webinar will be the sharing and the learning opportunity. The first part of today's webinar will feature individual presentations from our speakers, each offering a unique viewpoint on AI's impact on society, the economic and the legal frameworks that govern it. In these sessions, we will explore various facets of AI, including its potential risks and benefits, the importance of ethical considerations, and the challenges of regulating this transformative technology. The second part of this webinar will transition to a panel discussion focused on the question, what can governments do to keep AI safe? This will be an opportunity for an interactive dialogue, drawing on the expertise of all of you. 
In this part, we encourage all of you to actively participate, ask questions, and engage in discussions. Your contributions are invaluable to deepen our understanding and shaping the discourse on AI governance. Once again, welcome to the Governments for AI webinar. We are honored to have you with us and look forward to a stimulating and informative session. Let us embark on this journey of exploration and discovery together. Thank you all. Thank you very much, Shifeng. Uh, next up, I want to move to give the floor to Jeffrey Lee Funk. Uh, Jeffrey Lee Funk's 40-year career has focused on how new technologies emerge and diffuse as a professor and consultant. He was one of the first to recognize the potential for smartphones during the late uh, 90s and the early 2000s in Japan. He earned the Entity Docomo Mobile Science Award in 2004. Hi, Jeffrey. Uh, the floor is yours. Thank you. The story of AI has been a long story of hype. Uh, <clears throat> we're now on the third wave. I was involved with the second wave as a PhD student at Carnegie Mellon in the early 1980s. The third wave was really started by uh, IBM Watson, uh, books by er Eric Brynjolfsson and Andrew McAfee at, at MIT, and Jeffrey Hinton saying in 2016 that all radiologists would be gone by 2021. Uh, actually, the number rose. Uh, there was also a lot of hype about self-driving vehicles uh, and the use of AI in criminal justice systems and uh, criminal justice system and welfare systems making decisions uh, that have caused more problems really than uh, than brought benefits. And and one conclusion from the from these this from these years is that although there was a lot of success in retail search and online fraud. It's hard to separate the benefits from AI from those from algorithms and big data, because in, in those applications, really, there was a big use of algorithms before AI came along. Another conclusion that we was that we needed more augmentation. We weren't going to get the replacement. It was going to be augmentation. With generative AI, we could say that we're talking about a fourth wave, uh, and it's still hard to find the truth. Big consulting firms said five years ago that AI produced economic gains of 16 trillion by 2030. Uh, now they're saying three to four trillion by 2030 for just just for generative AI. Uh, and clearly, it's going to be hard to believe those things. Uh, other people say the market for AI right now is only AI software is only 20 to 25 billion. Uh, these big consulting systems also said other funny things. Uh, about AI. One claim that the auto industry is the second most successful sector using AI a few years ago because of self-driving vehicles. Uh, but they really never succeeded. What you really want to do, and what, what I do and what m most of the, the, the people who are good at understanding the evolution of new technology and potential, they, you, you look at use cases, you look at niches. Uh, and this goes back a long ways looking at niches. Uh, a book in 1962 called The Diffusion of Innovations by Eric Ro Everett Rogers talked about 508 use cases. Jeffrey Moore, Crossing the Chasm 1981, talked about use cases, killer applications. And we, so we, would, and we would ask, what are those use cases for generative AI? I mean, a lot have been put forward. 
initially it was writing emails, writing articles, right? Uh, and unfortunately, we don't need more mail. We don't need more articles. We already have a lot. We need better mail. We need better articles. Uh, and, and that is the challenge because chat GTP is pretty good at producing mediocre, mediocre results, but novel, insightful approaches less so, so far. Uh, there was also a talk about search engines that uh, chat G GTP would replace uh, search, uh, Google search and uh, uh, other search. And uh, the funny thing is, is that Microsoft Bing is the biggest user of the search engines, biggest user of ChatGTP by the uh, search engines, but it hasn't gained any market share since incorporating ChatGTP. And there's a lot of problems, one of which it doesn't give you any links. And so there's a lot of funny stories about how GTP uh, operates. And I have argued that we must think about processes, not tasks. Uh, even though the business schools keep emphasizing tasks, they did a study of uh, MBAs writing reports and then they evaluated their reports and uh, by, by using some consultants and uh, professors. Um, but you really want the market to evaluate the reports. And that's one of the reasons why you want processes. You want to look at the downstream customers to evaluate how well uh, generative AI works in order to identify these kinds of use cases, these killer applications. And, uh, you know, coding is a great co case, but we have to look at processes. You know, no companies that I know of have announced that chat, that generative AI works well yet for coding, presumably because checking mistake for mistakes or worse, suffering from them costs more. Uh, now, we'll, I'm sure there'll be some kind of benefit that will come about, but it will take time and it will take time in other processes. The problem is, is that uh, market analyses, such as the one I mentioned earlier, only 20 to 25 billion for AI software in 2023. And surveys are also very pessimistic about these things. Uh, the Boston Consulting Group recently re uh, released uh, the results of a survey in which they found that 90% of companies were taking a wait and see approach. Only 6% of them had trained more than 20%, 25% of their knowledge works in chat GP. So those aren't big numbers. Things aren't happening as fast as the consulting companies claimed. And there's a lot of other surveys that have found similar results. Morgan Stanley cited a sur recent survey of chief information officers uh, in which most don't expect to have the first AI projects in production of the second half of 2024. And a UBS analyst said it was clear from our conversations that a year after the AI hype cycle kicked in, actual enterprise spending on AI remains modest in early stage. So this is all consistent with the small market for AI. Uh, most companies are taking a wait and see approach. Last year, there was a lot of surveys uh, that also uh, had uh, uh, didn't report a lot of users. So it's not just like I'm talking about one survey. All, most, most surveys are very consistent, not showing a great big usage. Uh, meanwhile, MIT economist Darren Asameglu uh, argues AL will be a great disappointment uh, in the last uh, month, as, as also has been occurred in an HB, Harvard Business Review article that asked, is Gen, I, Gen AI's impact on productivity overblown? So a lot of people are, are saying these things. I am most optimistic about the creative industries because they are the main industries that sell written stories and videos. 
I, I've written about them in the past, and I'm still optimistic, even though the industry itself is not providing details about the sex stories. And some of my co colleagues say I'm, not, I'm too optimistic. I'm too optimistic there. Um, basically, in summary, I'll say that my take is that executives are concerned about large numbers of hallucinations and other weaknesses. They don't want to give customers incorrect information, implement code that has bugs or other problems uh, that will take excessive time to debug. So there will be an impact, uh, but it's going to take time. And in the meantime, there may be more problems caused by ChatGTP, as, as I expect other people to talk about, then there are uh, big productivity benefits. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. Moving on to the next speaker, I want to uh, give uh, the floor to Patrick Glaner. Patrick is a full professor at AI uh, of AI at Germany's Degendorf Institute of Technology. He runs his own AI consulting firm, Skyrocket AI. He previously worked at CERN, had in the corporate AI Competence Center at Cronus Group, and as an expert witness, advised the Parliament of France, Germany, and Luxembourg on AI. He ranked among CDO's magazine's leading academic data leaders in 2022. Hi, Patrick, you have the floor. Hi, Emir, thank you very much. I wrote a story for this series, and I argued that AI is safe and works. Obviously, AI models, AI applications make mistakes, but so do humans. What I notice is that policymakers and politicians, they sort of seem to apply double standards. They accept that things go wrong in our daily life, but for AI, they want higher standards. And I, I doubt whether we should have sort of double standards. Maybe we should just apply the same standards we apply to everything to AI as well. And I think overall AI is a success story. AI works. I work a lot with industry advice companies, and there are so many cool things that work. Obviously, some things don't work, but it also has to do a lot with expectations. And uh, I think AI is not a silver bullet. However, a lot of people think so. And I think that leads to a lot of problems. If you can solve your problem much simpler, then do so. But for very complex problems, AI can be a very helpful tool in order to solve it. And I think we need much more AI, both in, in Europe as well as in China, because we have an aging population, we have a lack of talent, and AI can help us to address all of that. And what I, however, notice is there is all this gossip around existential harms, and a lot of politicians seem to be contributing to this. For example, if you look at the AI Safety Summit, end of last year in the UK, uh, the US Vice President Kamala Harris, she warned about AI applications and she said that we would that it would be a huge problem if a senior was kicked off his healthcare plan because of a faulty algorithm. And yes, that's obviously true. But somehow I only see in the US that criticism towards AI. If a human decides to kick off a senior or a disabled person from the healthcare plan, that then that doesn't seem to be a problem. But it is a problem. And for example, uh, we sh in Germany, you cannot be kicked off your healthcare plan, even if you're sick or bankrupt. And I think that's a good thing. So maybe we should sort of address the underlying problem so that seniors get kicked off their healthcare plan in the US. And, and that's something we don't want. Whether a human decides to do that or an AI decides to do that, it's a problem. We don't want this in general. And I don't think that that's actually an AI problem then. And um, I, I also see a lot of articles recently 
which argue that we could not trust AI decision-making, well, then I ask, can we trust human decision-making? And probably we cannot trust humans either because humans are heavily biased and maybe their decision-making cannot be explained. But with an AI, we have an algorithm. A lot of AI algorithms are white box algorithms. We can explain them and there are black box ones like neural networks, but we can try to interpret them, maybe not fully, but to some extent, and we can measure how good or how bad they work. And I think in a lot of other aspects of our daily life, we sort of accept that things are not explainable. So for example, truck development, even the developers, they don't really know how it works or why it works. They can only do clinical trials and measure how well it does on say 100,000 people but they cannot fully explain why it works that way. And there we also don't require full explainability. And I think we should just apply the same standards to AI. We can test AI models. Yes, they will still make mistakes, but so does everything else in our daily life. And there's actually a lot of methodology to make AI safer. Um, ever since the early machine learning books, there, there, there are chapters on um, statistical tests that you can apply to machine learning models. Uh, nowadays, there's more and more literature on making models more transparent and explainable. Uh, there are Gaussian processes, for example, which give you also some uh, statement on the certainty of their decision. And there's plenty of other met methodology that you can apply to machine learning models to make them more reliable, for example, conformal prediction. And I think we have all of this at hand and we should just use it actually. And I think um, in university, we should not just train students how to use machine learning models, but we should also train them in how to use all of that extra methodology, as well as understanding about biases in data and all of this and how to address them. And I think then um, AI will also work better in industry, but I don't think there is such a huge crisis as a lot of the politicians uh, keep telling us. And I think there's just a lot of overblown fears, like robots turning out of control, taking over the world, like in Terminator. When I sit together with politicians, I tell them, well, eventually all that deep learning stuff is just matrix multiplications. I don't think matrix multiplications will turn conscious and take over the world. Obviously, there could be very dangerous applications where you apply a neural network, but the neural network is not an actuator. It's just part of the algorithm. But then when I keep telling this to politicians and say, well, it's just matrix multiplications, then they ask back, what's a matrix multiplication? And I think that severely complicates discussions with policymakers if they lack an understanding of mathematics. And so that's my, my overview about what I think. Obviously, AI models make mistakes, they make wrong decisions, this can happen, but we have a lot of methodology at hand to actually do better. And we should not apply double standards to AI compared to everything else. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Patrick, for your insightful contribution. Um, next, uh, I want to uh, give the floor to Ivana. Uh, Ivana Bartoletti is a Global Chief Piracy Officer at Werpo and Visiting Policy Fellow at the Oxford Internet Use Institute. She is a author of An Artificial Revolution on Power, Politics and AI and founder of the Women Leading in AI Network. Hi, Ivana. Thank you so much. It's really great to be here with you. Um, it's an interesting time to, to have this conversation because um, the um, 
there's been um, a lot of discussions about uh, governance, um, especially um, in Davos last week, um, and where um, very much AI governance and uh, privacy and uh, uh, the algorithmic risks were very much on top of the agenda. Um, and perhaps we could also say that um, um, sort of the, the, the potential risks and liabilities around artificial intelligence are one of the, um, the, the obstacles for companies to fully embrace AI and AI transformation. Um, so a lot of Davos was really about that. And it was interesting how trust and uh, responsible AI was basically the key word in every single pavilion and every single business was really talking about it. At the same time, um, uh, just um, we are in the latest stage of the approval uh, for the uh, of the European AI Act, uh, which is uh, sort of the first AI specific regulation in the Western world, and um, um, certainly um, a big step for Europe. Um, and the European AI Act is um, um, is um, interesting um, piece of legislation. is very much. Um, uh, product base um, and um, and it defines AI based on the potential risks that it poses to health and safety as well as to the fundamental rights of citizens in Europe, people in Europe. And um, and one of the things about the European AI Act is that is very much embedded into the product safety legislation that underpins the EU, um, and it's. Um, um, uh, reiterate the importance of existing laws. So if we look, for example, the high-risk AI, which is AI that has got an impact on, on different categories of AI systems um, that, or, or of health and safety and fundamental rights, then um, the conformity assessment, for example, prescribes that the uh, AI systems has to be in conformity with health and safety um, standards, as well as general data protection regulation, copyright law. And why am I saying this? And the reason why I'm saying this is because AI is already regulated, because it doesn't exist in isolation. And that means that privacy laws, data protection legislation, copyright, human rights, non-discrimination, they all apply to AI already. And as uh, Varo Bedoya, commissioner in the FTC said, AI is certainly not a good reason to breach existing laws. So the call for um, regulation of AI is certainly determined by um, some of the uh, potential risks that people are seeing and companies are seeing. Um, some of it is also, um, is also um, let's say, uh, there's, uh, so there's been over recent months, I think, a, an attempt to um, highlight uh, some sort of existential risks about artificial intelligence that actually um, some appeals that we have seen circulating have been really unhelpful. Um, not because AI doesn't pose any risks, but actually because we've been talking about those risks for quite a long time. Um, the risks around, uh, for example, disinformation through deep fakes or around bias and unfair decisions. Um, and also, um, of, um, so all these things have been discussed for, for, for a long time. Um, and certainly um, the, the kind of arguments that we've seen in recent times, which are very dramatic, they take us away from the here and the now and the, the, the requirement that we have to address these issues um, in, uh, as, as immediately. Um, 
So and and um, and data protection regulation in this place has uh, has been playing a very important role. Um, if I think about how many data protection regulators have been leveraging. Uh, the principles of fairness in the handling and processing of data and fairness in the output of decisions in a way that um, sort of de facto acting as, as, as AI regulators. I've recently authored a report for the Council of Europe on how existing non-discrimination law cutters or, or, uh, or fails to cater for um, uh, AI harms um, uh, and uh, basically uh, outlining how um, um, existing laws need to be updated to also take into consideration um, the um, risks of artificial intelligence. Um, I um, The topic of AI governance is not a simple, clearly simple one. And I think what is really important now, we have the executive order in the US which is arguably quite in uh, uh, far-reaching because yes, it does apply to to public sector, but also much go down in in the supply chain and therefore involved in a huge variety of subjects. And it covers robustness, security, but also transparency and and uh, non-discrimination. And then you have in the US a very very strong uh, role played by the FTC. Uh, the approach to governance of AI in the US is slightly different, whereas the EU is a horizontal um, legislation which is product-based and to an extent you could argue that regulates an AI product as it would regulate a refrigerator uh, because it's based on the product in itself. The US has an approach which is more sectoral-based. In addition to that, in the US there is a lot of legislation in more regional and state level looking, for example, at the, the deployment of algorithms uh, in decision-making, uh, for example, in employment, in the states, and uh, and all of this is developing quite rapidly as well. Uh, other parts of the world are really um, investing in AI governance too. I've just uh, read a very interesting um, maturity model scheme that has been developed by Singapore, um, which is really um, easy to understand, very um, focused on um, some of the similar issues that we have seen governments and companies focusing on all around the globe. Um, India, uh, NASCOM has created a document to support companies with responsible AI. Um, China has got strict regulation when it comes to algorithms deployment and, um, and um, Australia um, is also doing quite a lot of work on, on AI governance. I think um, governance comes in many different ways. Um, in my view, what is really important is that um, uh, there is obviously existing legislation which plays a big role. There is AI sector-specific legislation which is shaping up. Um, and also um, there is all, uh, there are strategies that companies are embracing day after day to ensure that um, whatever they produce or they deploy or if they um, uh, they do it in a way which not only complies with the law but also um, matches their approach to, to, to innovation and the values that they have as an organization in the world we live in. I think the challenge for companies will always be, how they can comply with standards and that are um, in a fast evolving legal landscape. Um, a lot of companies will have to deal with AI mainly in the space of vendor management, whether they um, 
create a safe instance of of um, of a let's say a generative AI tool and, and they augment it or um, they fine tune it and they use it internally. But a lot of for a lot of companies, this will be very much around um, around vendor management. But um, companies that um, produce AI systems, they use AI systems that may have an impact on their workforce. That have an impact on on um, a much wider impact, um, it's important that, um, that, that there is obviously a lot of attention and and uh, and scrutiny from regulators as well as uh, as well as uh, um, as well as customers. So I think what we're going to see in twenty twenty four is the um, European AI Act becoming legislation with uh, a framework to comply, which will be sometime between sort of some some requirements will go into force in one year especially around prohibited AI practices. And then some high-risk AI requirements will go uh, live in 24 months and some in 36 uh, months. So we will see a journey of the European AI Act. We will see uh, the European Commission setting up an early adopter scheme to encourage businesses to work together to try and understand how to translate complex and still vague, I'm afraid, in, in, in the Act, legal requirements into computational organization and technical methodologies. And what we'll also see is, in my view, um, we will see a lot of attention to the issue of deep fakes um, because of the number of elections that we have got um, coming up this year and um, and therefore um, in, um, there are 65 elections in 54 countries slated for 2024. So I think um, the issue of deep fakes will indeed become more and more relevant in the months to come um, and this is probably an area where you all and we all will be hearing a lot of discussions around how we can um, put clear watermarks, create serious awareness on people um, so that they can distrust in the design a lot of the things that they see. Um, but I think actually um, I can see the next few months being very much dominated by the issue of deep fakes. So that is for me. Thank you very much, Ivana. Next, I want to move on to uh, Richard. Richard Dasselar is an uh, expert in digital health strategy and is focused on the integration of medical AI into our global and re regional health technology ecosystems for the timely identification of disease and to bring superior care to those who need it. Hi, Richard. Hi, Amir. The floor is yours. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for this kind introduction. I'm very humbled for the invitation from the Juan uh, to be here to discuss this timely and relevant topic. Uh, my name is Richard. Um, discussing today governments for AI based on the article that I wrote. Uh, a little bit uh, brief introduction. So I am fulfilling a doctoral degree in artificial intelligence in cardiology. So predicting the one of the most predominant killer diseases on our planet, where I look at the strategy and how we transform our globe into a more equitable place. Uh, I'm a section chair for the WHO on the AI and Cardiology Working Group. I've got uh, connections with the Harvard Business Review, MIT, uh, Erasmus Medical Center, the number one in Europe, 
um, and with several governments who I fulfill um, the role to, uh, well, a little bit on my personality. Um, I'm very much committed with an equitable health system. I've lived in India, I've built schools in Africa during my younger years, and I think it's meaningful. Uh, my primary goal, therefore, is to, is to build an AI system um, that can help everybody. Um, based on my article, um, I think that AI regulation, which came to light in December uh, 2023, just a few weeks ago, uh, must lead to better decision making. If we look at what is a cost saver or a health saver, it is better decision making. Um, laws, therefore, cannot just be right. They also need to deliver to the promise what they are there for. In very simple words, um, legislation doesn't always make it easier for people to fulfill their purpose or for an AI in that sense. And I think uh, when we think, uh, so I'm, I'm part of several think tanks um, on the purpose of AI and why it needs good governments, specifically in the medicine field, um, what's the goal behind why we do what we do? Um, ultimately, it's to make the world, I think, uh, a little bit better. And um, therefore, we need to educate people, not only ourselves, but also others. Um, for the clinician and for the patient, it means two things. It's to make better clinical decisions. Very simple. Uh, a pragmatical example is heart disease. It's, it's the number one uh, disease worldwide. And it comes unexpected. When you are in the ambulance to the hospital, uh, a lot of costs are already being made to the system. And that leads to an unsustainable uh, thing uh, for uh, any government. And therefore, uh, the point that I'm trying to, or that I am making, is that superior choices uh, will lead to better outcomes. So, very simple, if you're more intelligent on the way that we act, and I think half of this group uh, was in Davos uh, <laughs> last week uh, to talk on the same. So that's, that's good. We, we may need to connect afterwards because I'm super curious. Uh, but back to the topic. Um, legislation is there to make a good reputation of the AI that we implement. What makes healthcare a little bit different is uh, we need to do things right the first time to protect the reputation of, for example, the clinician, because uh, we live in that sense in a, uh, an unforgiving world, but also to elevate what we know, um, uh, well, what I dubbed f f for conversational pieces, the Wild West uses of AI. Um, and in that sense for legislation uh, in the EU, um, we, we come at a point where we can think two ways. We need to deploy what we know right now because people are losing their lives. On the other hand, how do we make sensible choices of the outcome for the people? I've dubbed this the, the Wild West of AI. Um, the adage, because I also support startups or startups within corporates on the same, the go fast and break stuff adage doesn't work in healthcare. Um, we don't have that bandwidth. So what I do if I am learning myself, um, so 
the health outcome, therefore, is one thing. It needs to be affordable, too. And I think that makes it critically important uh, that, that additional regulations lead to smarter decision-making, not only in health, not only in AI, but also the ripple effect on economics and, and policies. Very shortly said, do we make sense of what the cost aspect is? Do we make sense of what the clinical aspect is? How do we merge that together? but also make a choice, uh, as, as my previous speaker shared, doing the right thing at the right moment. I think, therefore, uh, I've looked in the case of this article, and, uh, and I highly recommend to, 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 to highlight it. Um, I, I'm looking to a famous North American. I'm Dutch, by the way, uh, so not American. I'm from Europe. Um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, he's an educator, an astrophysicist, and he has this nice story which I briefly like to run over uh, with you. It's not in the article, but I'll share it. It's about this kid in New York that walks with his mom through Central Park. And as every parent knows, uh, the kid drums, tries to jump into the puddle. And just in time, the parent uh, pulls the kid out of the puddle. Why? Uh, because he or she will get dirty clothes. Now, the point, uh, what Tyson tries to argue is that learning and discovery, even for a government, because this is the first workable uh, draft version that we have, it's a very uh, unique way to see how AI, because I, I also agree with, um, with Patrick, that, that AI in its sense is a safe um, um, thing to use, but we also need to be careful on which ecosystem we, we, we launch it because it's a complex matter, artificial intelligence, and we're not sure how it interacts, but we do need um, a prime directive in that sense. And um, so we've also looked with, with the Turing group uh, to make a prime directive where the key elements should be um, and I'm quoting Dr. Janet Yellen, who I've had the honor of speaking with last year, um, on keeping the system safe on systemic risk. And systemic risk is the risk that can, um, if we do things wrong, um, we need to do the right things when it comes to healthcare and finance. And um, to conclude with what... Um, Neil deGrasse argues, and, and, and I myself am inclined to follow, um, growth is usually done in an incremental way. Um, another short story, I was speaking with a government official of Venezuela not too long ago on the implementation of AI. And I think the same message that I'm sharing with you, it's not only we need to be good enough to be right, we also need to make a legislation that's effective. Um, we bring that back to the European Union's Act, and, and it was uh, lauded and destroyed. But to quote uh, Ms. von der Leyen on the same is that our AI Act will make a substantial contribution to the development of rules and the principles. And I think the legislative part of an AI Act should follow the principles that we would like to see as mankind. So to achieve our highest um, aspiration and the development of a global set of rules. Now, per definition, um, governments need to learn too. And as an incrementalist myself, 
Uh, I follow uh, many scholars, uh, but also the business life that we can only make better decisions after we've learned from our previous ones. And that would um, make, um, for example, the, par the parent-child uh, situation, and in any form, you focus on what the kid does well. And I think in this case, uh, governments around the world um, can take a, a, an example um, for the first draft, regardless where it was made. Uh, I think this was echoed, uh, as could have been read in, in, in the Fortune uh, magazine, on focus what's well and go from there. Now, to wrap this up, um, I think one of the superior results of the EU regulation just uh, coined is um, the echo for a new law that's inclusive, unbiased and protects residents and can be copied uh, to support global citizenship. So we're now one month later um, um, after the launch of that legislation and I think both Dr. Yellen, who is now a finance minister under Biden, um, well, and if, um, uh, we need to ask ourselves the question. Um, with that onset of a first, I think, good example of legislation, how can we maximize the yield of our super toy? So we have a tool that's inherently, it's a tool um, superior to serve mankind. And do we think of the laws that inhibit the growth? So, or pull the growth away um, by design? And I think that's, that's the key question. Thank you. Thank you very much, Richard. Next and lastly, I want to announce Anthony Abad, who is an international trade lawyer who sits on the World Trade Organization Dispute Settlement Panel. As a chairman uh, for the Philippines of the International Chamber of Commerce's uh, Commission on Competition, Tony continues to be at the forefront of the country's economic development by advocating and ensuring the practice of competition. Hi, Tony. Hello, Emir. The floor is yours. Thank you. Um, and, and thank you for having me. Um, my topic might be uh, slightly different in the sense that I'm not talking about AI itself, but how AI is going to affect a very important um, legal system, which is the legal system or legal framework for international trade. Um, I am actually going to be embarking on a, a research for the World Trade Institute, uh, WTI, uh, beginning this spring, um, and will probably go on for the next few years. Uh, but the question that was posed uh, to begin with was, what is going to happen? Or what is the future of the multilateral trading system, the WTO, uh, and all related treaties and agreements that govern uh, the exchange of goods and services uh, globally. Um, and that led to a more specific question about how will artificial intelligence affect the, ru the rules for international trade? And so the, this, in, this research is going to be embarking on the very big question of how, how are we going to see international trade rules change or a legal framework for international trade change based on the effect of artificial intelligence on international trade. Um, 
in the short article I, I, I contributed, um, it gives a preview uh, to this research, to this, uh, to this dissertation. And, um, and of course, I'm, I'm very happy uh, to be in your company. And I hope that um, I'll be able to consult uh, some or all of you um, uh, regarding this uh, nexus between uh, artificial intelligence and the use of AI and how it will affect the rules. Now, this is also part of the governance series. It is about governance. But most of the literature I've seen is really about governance of how AI is used, the application of AI. And what I would be looking at is more of what are the general rules that humans use to interact with each other, uh, particularly in this case in international trade um, and international investment as well. Uh, one of my, earlier, my early observations is that there is an effect of the use of AI in accelerating uh, the velocity or the volume of trade. So, so trade increases in volume and moves faster now because of the use of AI applications. In fact, as, as, uh, as long ago as 2018, a study showed that, um, that eBay uh, had an increase of 13% uh, to 15% in its volume of uh, transactions simply through the use of language translation uh, AI. Um, so when you take this and you start looking at other applications of AI in the global supply chain, the supply chain for international trade, you'll see that it will have certain effects. Now, uh, at this point, let me also uh, chime in and, and agree with the word of advice that AI shouldn't be seen at the onset as something to be feared or something that uh, is driven by some conspiracy um, or, some, or an evil plot. AI is simply a productivity tool. It is uh, something that is used to be able to improve the way we do things. And I'm looking specifically at international trade. And of course, in international trade, the faster and, and, and the more voluminous your trade is, and the more, well, the, more, the more economies of scale, the more business, the more profit you're able to, to, uh, to achieve. And that's why, um, that's why international trade will naturally gravitate also to the use of AI uh, as a productivity tool. It will improve the way we do things and it will do it exponentially. Applying Moore's law, uh, you know that you know, within 18 months, you've already doubled uh, computing capacity. And so that's going to have an impact also And when you're using it with, uh, with international trade. There will be supply chain optimization. So on the physical side, you're going to see warehouses, uh, shipping, uh, becoming more autonomous and driven by algorithms, driven by... Uh, by the automaticity of, uh, of AI applications. Um, there is, of course, the trade data, which is very important uh, in, in engaging in, in international trade. Um, the more accurate and the faster you're able to achieve or, or uh, receive um, uh, data on international trade, the faster also uh, it will move uh, 
trade along. Trade facilitation, the documentations that go into customs clearances and, and, other, and other approvals and clearances and regulations also are going to be accelerated by the use of AI. Now, take that and um, seeing it increase trade exponentially creates this vision of international trade or, or the world becoming eventually economically integrated, meaning transactions are going to naturally gravitate towards being in an integrated system. And AIs will thrive because of a larger market, the economies of scale. Uh, in competition, we have what you call a relevant market. You define a market based on the limitations of geography and, and consumer. Um, but that uh, the borders and the borderlines of this relevant market will start becoming uh, blurred, will start integrating into each other. And this is just the AI. This is the natural proclivity or the natural tendency of AI to try and achieve these economies of scale and to seek out other AIs that are in the supply chain and achieve a seamless movement of goods and services back and forth. So that means that you also have to view and take a long, hard look at the way we govern ourselves when it comes to international trade. Um, and going back to my research, I would have to focus on the multilateral system, meaning the WTO agreements, um, and what is the implication of an, a globally integrated system on, on the WTO rules. Um, but the larger part or the larger uh, horizon of my research is really about legal rules, about uh, laws and regulations uh, all over the world and how AI forces us to take a look, a second look at our legal frameworks and the principles that drive our legal frameworks. I am even going to embark on looking at constitutions. The constitutions of countries should be reviewed, knowing that AI applications will be, be used more and more, not just in, in private commerce, but also in, in government, in the, in the supply of public goods and services. Um, and all of this means that we have, to look at, we have to look at the world in a different way. We have to look at global commerce differently. And we have to think uh, and, and, and act smartly and, of course, make the new legal framework dynamic enough um, so that, you know, future generations will still be able to use AI um, in international trading systems. Now, the idea of a integrated world, of course, evokes um, uh, uh, the philosophies and thoughts of, of philosophers and, and early economists like Adam Smith. Um, and he also, you know, when, when he looks at productivity tools, it just means that you are able to achieve more of the specialization and differentiation that makes international trade more efficient. And the more integrated the markets are, the more efficiency you're able to achieve. You bring down the cost of production, and this creates what he calls the value-added which then becomes what he calls in, the, in his treatise, the wealth of nations. 
the true wealth of nations is the value added created by increased productivity. And AI, just like the steam engine or, uh, or the telegraph, uh, are productivity tools that have improved uh, the way we, we transact with each other. Um, but in an integrated market, then how do you apply or how do you maintain discipline? How do you assure a certain level of, of fairness or justice in transactions? Uh, and what comes to mind and what I'm trying to, I hope to make that linkage, is really about competition, law, and policy. That in an integrated market, it is really about preventing monopolization, uh, preventing abuse of market positions or market power. And this may be a danger, of course, in platform-based businesses or, or those who control AI may be tempted eventually to monopolize the market based on their strengths or their, their, their market power in the use of their AI application. And we have to maintain what you call an equilibrium in this, in this integrated market. And that means that you have to make sure that there is no particular um, firm, there's no particular group of firms or industry that can manipulate, that can abuse the system. And that is where, you know, that is where this whole uh, discussion uh, has to be based on and, and, and what we have to, uh, what we have to focus on. Um, right now, I don't have the answers, uh, but I hope to find some and answer some questions. Um, but definitely, I, I think this is one area um, in this whole discussion that should also be looked at carefully and discussed. Uh, and I think it will, you know, there's, there's plenty of overlaps, plenty of uh, interconnections uh, with many of the fine discussions that I just heard. Uh, again, thank you very much. And uh, I'll be happy to answer any questions uh, later. Thank you so much, Tony. Moving on, thank you for all your insightful participation in the first part of our webinar. Everyone's stance is quite clear. Uh, as we transition from, from these individual perspectives to a broader dialogue, I want to start the panel discussion. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by the UN, a tech community focused on artificial intelligence in healthcare, machine learning, and related disciplines. I am Amir Mustafa, and see you next time.